Many of you have never been to Pittsburgh, and I know that the people in Pittsburgh have probably not been to Dune either. In fact, it's been many, many, many years since I've been in Dune, Iowa. My brother-in-law, John Kelsbeek, used to be a teacher here. Maybe the old-timers remember him. And if I recall, that might be the last time I was here. That was a long time ago. So greetings from them, and I'm happy to be with you in your midst tonight as well. It's good to see God's saints in other places. And uh, this is a good privilege that I have to see you tonight too. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark 16. Mark 16. Most of this chapter is devoted to Jesus' appearances after his resurrection. And we might begin to think when we start reading this chapter, well, what really does this have to do with Christ's ascension? But we are going to be paying particular attention to the two last verses of this chapter that do speak of Christ's ascension. It's rather nice that it gets tied in together with his resurrection. So we'll start reading in verse 1 of Mark 16. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter, that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. And they went out quickly, and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these things shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And now these last two verses will be our text tonight. So then, 
after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. I remember when I was a child asking my mother, why do I have to go to church tonight? I was rather annoyed. Isn't it enough to have to go to church on Sunday? Now I have to go to church tonight too. Now, of course, I realize quite well why we go to church on Ascension Day evening, but at that time I really didn't understand all that well why we had to go to church. So tonight we're going to explain that, especially for the sake of our children. We consider the second great step tonight in Christ's exaltation, first one being his resurrection. We consider tonight his ascension into heaven. Forty days ago, we as God's people met together on the Lord's Day in order to celebrate or commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some people like to call that day Easter. I prefer calling it Resurrection Day. With Christ's resurrection, he conquered for his people the power of the grave. He broke the bars away from the grave and came forth. Christ had entered into the place of the dead, of course, when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had laid his body to rest in Joseph's tomb. But now, having risen from the dead, he broke the hold that death had on him. And because he broke the hold that death had on him, he broke the hold death had on you and me, too. So that now we face the grave victoriously. But we desire much more than mere deliverance from the grave, don't we, as God's people? We desire to be taken into heavenly glory, to dwell with our Father there. Every believer desires that end. There's the purpose, the very goal of our lives here below, to enter into heavenly glory. And though that was already made possible by Jesus Christ through his death and by means of his resurrection, nevertheless, the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven was also necessary in this regard. By means of his ascension, Christ himself personally entered into heaven and now sits at God's right hand. But while in heaven, Christ prepares for you and me a place there. So the Church of Christ enjoys commemorating the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven too. And since the ascension happened 40 days after the resurrection, we too, as a church, count 40 days after Resurrection Sunday, and that falls on tonight, So tonight we 
commemorate the ascension of Jesus Christ. That, children, is why we are here tonight in church. There are not many actual accounts in the scripture of Christ's ascension into heaven. Though it's mentioned, of course, factually throughout the entire New Testament, Luke gives us a very brief account at the end of his gospel account, just as Mark gives us a brief account tonight in his gospel. So we can see for ourselves not a whole lot is said about the actual ascension of Christ into heaven. Perhaps the most detailed account is given us by Luke in Acts 1. And yet there is enough spoken in the word of God that we have before us tonight that gives us sound instruction in the ascension of Christ. And it is to that instruction that we intend to turn for a few moments tonight as well. We consider Christ's ascension tonight under the theme received by God into heaven. Number one, carried into heaven. Number two, working on earth. And number three, spreading the gospel. Luke, in his account of the ascension in Acts 1, tells us specifically, it was 40 days after Christ's resurrection. Mark does not do that. But Mark does give us a time factor in the verses that we consider tonight. He writes, So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven. And the point that that Mark makes here in his gospel account is that Christ ascended into heaven only after he had finished He had completed giving his disciples all the instruction that they needed to hear from him before he would ascend into heaven. In other words, Jesus remained on earth those 40 days because he had many things yet that he had to communicate to his disciples before departing into heaven. And after only after those things were spoken would he be received again into heaven itself. The question is, of course, (coughs) what are some of those things that Jesus spoke to his disciples? We find in verses 15 through 18 of this chapter some of the very last words that Jesus gave to his disciples, that is, telling them now to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But Luke fills in a few of the other things that Christ had to teach his disciples before going into heaven. We read in Acts 1, verses 7 and 8, And Jesus said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That was only a part, of course, of the instruction that was given. We read in verse 3 of Acts 1, To whom also, to the disciples, also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In other words, he, he 
He had to teach them a lot of things concerning the kingdom of God, its spiritual nature, and our place in that kingdom prior to his ascending into heaven. After all of that instruction had been given to his disciples now, he was taken to heaven. By the way, a few of those words that Jesus spoke to his disciples prior to going to heaven are recorded for us in Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus states, And lo, I am with you always. I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Just take note of that. We'll be coming back to that a little bit later on in our sermon tonight. Once Christ had spoken these words, we are told by Mark, he was received up into heaven. That's all that Mark tells us. That's all that he tells us about the actual ascension of Jesus Christ into the heavens. And yet, in this short phrase of our text, there are a number of important matters that are noteworthy for you and me. First of all, we are told that Jesus was received up into heaven heaven. Striking, isn't it? Whenever we speak of Christ's ascension, the word itself implies that. It is that he was received up into heaven. And whenever we tell our children where does Christ live, then they'll always point up into heaven. That distinguishes for us tonight the ascension of Jesus Christ from all of the other appearances of Jesus to his disciples prior to this point. Christ, remember, had appeared and disappeared and appeared and disappeared many times during these 40 days. So that when he appeared to his disciples during this time and disappeared, then, then he was simply received out of their sight. He appeared to them, then he was received out of their sight. Because this had happened, his disciples, well, they began to depend on Jesus Christ reappearing once again at the appropriate times to speak more things concerning the kingdom of God. The character of the ascension was different than that. This time, while Christ spoke to his disciples, Right before their eyes, he began to float up into the sky. And they watched him go up until the clouds received him out of their sight. They literally, they literally saw Jesus go up into the skies. And it was then that he was received up into heaven. And while they stood there in amazement, two angels appeared to them and explained to them, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go up. The disciples knew at this time that this was the final time that they were going to see their, their Savior. This was it. He was taken away from them and into the realm of the heavenly. Now, that's not to say, of course, and we as adults understand that quite well, it's not to say that heaven is somewhere up in the sky or in outer space somewhere, so that if you, you took a rocket, somehow maybe if you took it far enough, you could reach heaven. That's not what the scripture means 
when it says that he was taken up into heaven. That simply emphasizes to you and to me that the realm of heaven is a higher place, a different place, a spiritual place, but a higher place because, you see, God reigns in the highest. He reigns in heaven. So heaven is completely a different realm than the earthly, and yet whenever we consider heaven, we consider it as up. The second matter worthy of note in our text is this. Mark uses the passive tense here. Jesus was received up into heaven. Most often when we conceive of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, we think of Christ, that all-powerful Lord now, who broke the bars away from the grave because, after all, he was the powerful Son of God, that now of his own power he ascended into the heavens. And that's true. There's no doubt about it. Just as Christ had the power to raise himself from the dead, Christ also had the power to ascend into heaven. And by means of his own power as the living, resurrected Lord, Christ ascended into the heavens. But Mark here is emphasizing something a little bit different. Mark emphasizes the fact that he was received by God into heaven. Luke speaks of that same fact in his gospel account. He speaks of the fact that he was carried up into heaven. So we have the idea now of God reaching down to the earth and taking up to himself his son, Jesus Christ. And that is really a significant fact. That God received Christ into heaven? That's significant because, first of all, it reveals to us the eternal and all-encompassing love that God had for his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God has said that during his earthly ministry. Here was the son of his love upon whom God had poured out the fury of his wrath on account of our sins. Here was the son of God who had been utterly humiliated by the hands of wicked men being rejected of them but also being forsaken by that father. Why? Because he was carrying the guilt of our sins. Christ suffered all of that for you and me, his people. God put his son through all of that for you and me. Now his heavenly father reaches down to the earth and in his great love for his son, he carries his son up to be with him in heavenly glory and to sit at his right hand. He's taking his son to be home. After all of that, 
that he performed for you and me. He was taking his son to be home with him in his presence. What great love God had for Jesus Christ, his son. And it's that same love that God has for you and me for Christ's sake. That's how dearly he loves us. He loved us so much that he sent the son of his love to the cross in order to purchase us, in order to save us from our sin and from our guilt. So great a love does God have for us. More than once, people of God, as a pastor, I sat by the bedside of one whom God was taking home to be with him. And more than once, I could see in the face of that believer whom God was taking home, the joy, the comfort that father was taking him or her home to be with him in heavenly glory. What great comfort Christ's ascension has for us personally. So great a love God has for us. But there's something else that ought not to escape our attention in the phrase that we have here too, that he was received by God. The Bible speaks of the fact, of course, that God approved of what Christ performed on the cross by means of Christ's resurrection. Christ would have been left in the grave if God would not have approved of what Christ had done on the cross. He was raised again for our justification. The fact of the matter is, is that we also see in a passage such as this sort that if God had not approved of the work that Jesus Christ had performed on the cross, he would not have reached down and taken him to be in heaven with him either. So we have here a definite proof, just as we do in the resurrection, a definite proof, you see, that what Christ had done on the cross was, was done perfectly was done completely. Not one sin of ours was overlooked. He paid for every sin of every child of God of all times and of all nations. He did that at the cross. And because of that too, he had a place now in heaven. And then we ought to take note of that. It was because of Christ's humiliation also that he was exalted. He was taken and he ascended into heaven for one reason. And Mark points that out to you and to me as well in verse 19 of our text. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Christ ascended into heaven immediately to take his place at God's right hand there. Now, the essentials students know this very, very well. There are various steps in Christ's exaltation. First one is resurrection. Second one is ascension. The third one is sitting at God's right hand. So we really have mention here in this verse of the second as well as the third steps in Christ's exaltation. We speak of that oftentimes in distinction, is sitting at God's right hand, in distinction from Christ's ascension. But we ought not to think that this third step in Christ's exaltation had nothing to do with his ascension. 
He ascended into heaven in order that he might sit at God's right hand. And although we're not going to get into this third step in Christ's exaltation too much in detail tonight, nevertheless, we ought to, we ought to understand exactly what that meant. God's right hand is a picture or a figure of the sovereign and almighty rule of God over all things. And it is by that right hand that God places the one who rules under him. That's where our divine human mediator sits. It sits he sits at, at, at the right hand of God's throne, and he rules on behalf of God in heaven. He was taken there. He earned that place there. He earned it by means of his humiliation. Now he ascends into heaven. He sits there at God's right hand, and he rules over everything. Psalmist in Psalm 2, verse 7 says, he declares the decree. In other words, all the decrees of God in his plan for all things, Christ executes them throughout the whole New Testament period. He directs the unfolding of God's eternal plan. And he guides everything. He guides them in creation. He guides them in history. He guides them in the church. He guides them in our own, our own personal lives. Everything is guided by Jesus Christ because he ascended into heaven and he sits at God's right hand. Rather interesting to note that this is the first time in his entire gospel account that Mark addresses Jesus as Lord. There was a purpose in that. Because as our exalted Savior, Christ sits at the right hand of God and he rules over all things. He rules over all men, and he rules over his church from heaven. So that's part of the significance of Christ's ascension into heaven. That stands in rather close connection now with what we read in the remainder of God's word tonight here. And they went forth, the disciples went forth, and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following, Amen. Now, at first glance, of course, it seems like all the attention has been switched from Christ's ascension and now talks about what the disciples of Jesus Christ did after Christ left them and went to heaven. But the word of God before us in this verse does not seek to draw our attention to the disciples. It seeks to draw our attention to Christ the ascended Lord and his continuing work. It is true, the disciples went and preached everywhere, but we learn in verse 20 that it was the Lord, there's that name for Christ that he uses, it was the Lord that worked with them and confirmed their preaching everywhere that they went. Christ continued to work in this world after he ascended into heaven. He continued to work in this world through his disciples. That's interesting. Christ had just now ascended into heaven and was seated at God's right hand there on his throne. But God's word 
in, in, in the very next breath, tells us that he's here on earth working with his disciples. Seems to be a problem there. How could Christ, who was now in heaven, be working with his disciples here on earth? How could that ever be true? That was one reason that we read Lord's Day 18 tonight of the Heidelberg Catechism too. Because Lord's Day 18 really explains that for you and me. You see, Christ ascended bodily into heaven, to be sure. That means that as far as Christ's human nature is concerned, Christ is in heaven. Christ cannot be in heaven and on earth as far as his human nature is concerned because if that were true, then I suppose we could find Christ somewhere on this earth walking around in his body, in his human nature. Christ's human nature cannot be in two places at one time. Christ's human nature is in heaven. He's busy there. As our divine human mediator, he's busy in heaven. And he's preparing a place for you and me there. He's making intercession with God on our behalf in heaven. And he's guarding all things in heaven. So he's busy there as our divine human mediator. But we may not forget, people of God, that Christ is also very God. He's the eternal Son of God. And as God, he's everywhere present. He is in heaven, and he is on earth. And though he is in heaven, therefore he is in no time or way absent from you and me. Christ is here tonight. As we sit and worship, Christ is here. He's here by his spirit and his grace. Because he's omnipresent, he is able, as the Son of God, to be present with you and me. And he is by means of the spirit of Christ. He's here by his spirit. So that at no time when the disciples labored was their Lord absent from them. This is why earlier I mentioned the words that, Je- what, that Jesus had spoken to, to his disciples just prior to his ascension. He told his church, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I'm with you always. I'll never depart from you. So the disciples and the church afterwards throughout the ages has labored under that knowledge and with that blessed, blessed assurance. Christ is the power behind the preaching of the gospel. When the word of God is faithfully proclaimed in all of this world, Christ works with that preaching. No, Christ works through the preaching of the gospel. That's what makes it so powerful, you know. Sometimes we don't think so much about that when we come to church on the Lord's Day. That Christ is present in the preaching 
of the word, not only in our worship, but through the preaching of the word, he works. The disciples would have accomplished absolutely nothing if their ascended Lord was not with them while they were preaching. The church would have died, <laughs> just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted it to, huh? The church would have died immediately after Christ died, if Christ, or even ascended, if Christ was not with them while they were preaching the gospel. You wonder why there were 3,000 and then later we read of 5,000 people added to the church immediately after Pentecost? That wasn't by means of the disciples' own power. It wasn't by means of their persuasiveness or anything. It was because Christ was working at that point. He was there working with those disciples. And it was Christ that caused the fruits when the word was heard. When the call of the gospel went out everywhere, when the command to repent and believe was heralded, then Christ worked. He worked in the hearts of his chosen people. There were many who heard the gospel then, just as well as today. At the same time, many did not turn to faith and repentance when they were commanded by the gospel. God had not, after all, chosen them unto salvation. It was not even God's desire to save them through the apostles' preaching. The reason that the word did not save everyone is because Christ, by his Spirit, who was present in the preaching, Christ, by his Spirit, did not choose to work in the heart of everyone. But many were brought to faith and repentance by means of the Spirit of Christ. Christ did that. He worked in their hearts through his Spirit, and they heeded the call of the gospel to them. And together with this effectual work of Christ in the hearts of men, Christ also confirmed the preaching of the gospel by the mouth of his apostles with many signs. Mark adds that too, with many signs. To these men, the apostles, God gave the gift of miracles in order to establish the Christian faith. He had to do that. These miracles served as signs to prove that the apostles were authoritative, that they were indeed sent by Jesus Christ himself, and that he worked together with them in the preaching of the truth. As soon as the Christian faith was established, there was no more need for that sign, those miracles. They weren't necessary anymore. But so long as they were needed, Christ confirmed the preaching of the word by means of those Signs. Such then was the way that the ascended Lord continued his labor among men. What more can be said? This that Christ continues to labor today 
in his church in exactly the same way. Not with the signs, not with the miracles anymore. They're no longer needed, but through the preaching of the word. Didn't cease and desist with the apostles, you know, his presence. Our text tells us they went forth and preached the gospel everywhere. Do you think the disciples actually preached the gospel everywhere? Personally? Themselves? We do learn that the apostles went out from Jerusalem and many of them preached far and wide the gospel, but not everywhere. But the church did, and the church still does. The church, through the disciples, receives the calling to preach the gospel, doesn't it? To all creatures, everywhere. And it is still Jesus Christ himself that works with and in the church through the preaching of the gospel. My preaching here tonight, and those of the other pastors that you hear, and the one that is no longer here with you, that preaching would be ineffectual. It would produce nothing at all in your hearts if it were not for the work of Jesus Christ in the church. Christ is indeed present today in the church of Jesus Christ, just as he was then. And for that reason, the gospel is spread throughout all of the earth. And it will be until the very end of time. Because, let's face it, that's one of the signs of Christ's coming, that the gospel will be preached throughout all of the earth. And it's preached. It's preached not only where we gather together as God's saints in church. The word of God is preached indiscriminately in all of this world. It's not only preached by our own missionaries, because if that were the case, then the church wouldn't be very large, would it? But by faithful missionaries that have been sent out into all of this world, sometimes from denominations that we are not even aware of in this world, sending forth pastors and teachers into this world and preaching it. It's spoken to everybody who will hear. Spoken to everybody. But not everybody is turned by it. Not the faith and repentance. That's true not only when the gospel is preached throughout all of the world, that's oftentimes true even in the church of Jesus Christ when the gospel is preached there. Not everyone has turned to faith and repentance. But that's not the fault of the preaching. It's not the fault of Jesus Christ himself. The gospel is all-powerful to save God's people in this world. But Christ uses the gospel today to call only his elect people. He's in heaven. His spirit is alive and working in the church today, people of God. Our Lord sits enthroned in the heavens, accomplishing God's purpose with respect to the salvation of all of his people yet today. And from heaven, Christ is gathering his church. From heaven, the spirit is sent forth to dwell in the hearts of 
of God's people. From heaven, our ascended Lord declares the decree and the church is saved. We serve not just the risen Savior. We serve an ascended Savior who's Lord. And we rejoice today in Him. We find our strength today as a church of Jesus Christ in Him. Let His work be done forever and forever. Amen and amen. That's how Mark ends his gospel account with the word amen. And that too is how we conclude at the end of our services. Let all things be accomplished as Christ our Lord directs them from heaven. So let it be. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, before thee we bow. Thou art God and God alone. Thou dost reign in the heavens over all. And Father, we bow before thy Son, Jesus Christ, who reigns at thy right hand. We stand amazed at the work that he has performed for us as thy beloved Son. A God who sent him into this world in order that we might have a place with thee in heaven. And we're thankful that even now he prepares that place for us. And when it is our time, then he will come and receive us unto himself, just as thou didst receive him unto thee. Bless us now by thy word, that that word might live within our hearts, and that we might, with our thoughts, ascend up into heaven, so that we might look at the things that are above and not the things that are below. Hear our prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.